Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jessica. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we give you thanks for your word this morning. And though it is one full of death and what could easily become despair, we, Lord, ask that you would encourage our hearts to know, Lord, that your word <clears throat> endures forever, forever and your kingdom endures forever as well. So give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, so that, Lord, we might be little more this morning conformed into your image and into your son's image. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at the death of Saul, I think many times when we experience or hear or witness a funeral, we begin to experience a lot of regret in our life. It could be any momentous occasion. It could be a graduation of a friend or of your child or of a sibling. It could be a funeral of someone that you love. And what's flooded in your mind are those regrets of what could have been and what might have been. That's the feeling I got as I read this last chapter of 1 Samuel, as we've been going through it methodically, chapter by chapter. There's this eerie sense of, what could I have learned? What can we learn from Saul's life? We've spent so much time in this book, and what are the things that God wants to teach us? so that we might not live a life of regret. There's a book by Dan Pink. He wrote this book last year called The Power of Regret. And the reason he wrote this book was because there was this imp the impetus of it was when he was sitting at his daughter's graduation. And as he sat there, all these floods of memories came into his mind of what could have been, what might have been. If only I had done this, if it was nicer, if I forgave here or there, if I had let her have a little more freedom. Came about this book and he conducted probably the largest regret study in the world. Over 17,000 people participated from over 105 countries. And as he took all this information and data, he found that there were about four different areas of regret that you could categorize people into. Or not people, but regrets into. First, there was the foundational. Second, boldness, moral, and connection. I'll just go through these briefly, but foundational are those things, the failures to be responsible regarding education, health, or finances. So for you children here, I know you guys are, in, are all in here this morning, but one of the regrets that people had that's foundational is that I wish I had studied harder in school. Or for adults, maybe thinking about, I wish I had started saving a lot earlier so that I wouldn't be in, the, in this financial predicament I'm in. The other one was boldness. The chances not taken, whether it's career or romance. One of the big ones was, if only I had approached that person and told them that I liked them. That was one of the huge, biggest regrets people had. Moral. This juncture or crossroads where you can choose to do right or you could choose to do wrong. And choosing wrong left them with all of these regrets into later into life. It could be infidelity or it could also be things like um, bullying students or friends in school that was a huge one of bullying kids in junior high and in high school and then the last one that he identified was connection fractured or unrealized relationships one where they wanted to call this person that they had been in this tiff with for years and could never get themselves to call only to find out that that person has passed away I even have a regret this morning as I stand here because my back is killing me and the regret of playing basketball yesterday when I haven't touched a basketball in over five years. 
I mean, we all have regrets. But the, but the point of his book is this, is that we hear this philosophy that no regrets, right? You should have no regrets in life. And he says it's such a bad idea because we all have regrets in life. But the problem is we don't want to confront them. We have tattoos that misspell no regrets. We have books and commercials and movies that play in on this aspect of have no regrets. When in actuality, if you were to be honest, if you were to be honest this morning, all of us have so many regrets in life. The reason I share that this morning is as we look at Saul's death, I'm sure he would have had so many regrets of his life. And what I want us to do is to be able to say, okay, let's look at the regrets. No matter how hard it is, no how challenging it might be, what are the things that we can learn from this entirety of this book, but specifically here in chapter 31? And I, and I divide it into three areas. The failure of Saul, the gratitude of Jabesh Gilead, and lastly, the lament of David. So let's just look at those three things as we, as we uh, finish our time in 1 Samuel. Let's look at failure of Saul. If you've been following with us at all during this series, this pretty much describes Saul's life, right? He had failed to lead God's he had failed to lead God's people and he had failed to really love God and his character. But that's not how he began. He began in humility and in obscurity. And in his first testing, he actually was successful as a leader and as a king. He went into Jabesh Gilead and wiped out the Ammonites, including their great leader, Nahash. But in chapter 15 and on, we see the wheels unravel in Saul's life. He becomes more proud. His life is distinguished by one that takes matters into his own hands rather than depending on the Lord. And we see that little by little as we went through this book. When he's about to fight the Philistines, instead of waiting for Samuel the priest to give the sacrifice... What does he do? He wants to rush into it. And so he makes the sacrifice instead of allowing Samuel to do so. He allows Jonathan to go into battle ahead of him against the Philistines because of his own fear of failing. And we see that especially accentuated with David. When Goliath comes and, and, and basically mocks Israel and their God, Sam, or Saul, who is God's representative, the king who should stand up for his people, doesn't. And who comes? This little boy, David. And so in chapter 15, we see God reject Saul as king over Israel. And then it just keeps getting worse. There's this downward spiral where at the end of chapter 28, what does Saul do? He goes and seeks out a medium to be able to find out what God's will is. And Zach preached on that a few weeks ago. So the issue here isn't that Saul failed because he wasn't strong enough. It wasn't because he wasn't smart enough. It wasn't because he was, wasn't skilled enough or he wasn't politically savvy enough. The reason he failed was because it was a failure of his character to follow God. And it results in his death here in chapter 31. Read with me in verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. 
This is the end of his life. Even in his death and his last action, he continued to fail to follow God because he ended up taking his own life. Am I off you guys? Oh, there we go. I'm back on. All right. No worries. I'll just, I'll just be a little louder. I got, a, I got a loud voice. Let me just take a moment here as we think and consider Saul taking his own life. I was taught growing up in my church as a kid that suicide was the unforgivable sin. Nowhere in Scripture, at least in the Scriptures that I read and believe in, is that ever said or taught. Nowhere. The idea some come with is that because it's the final act, you cannot seek forgiveness and repentance. And because of that, you experience judgment forever. But rather, what we see Scripture teach is that Jesus' death on the cross and his purpose was to forgive us and cleanse us from all our sin, right? Past, present, and future. None of us die sinless to be able to go to heaven. But it's because of the work of Jesus. But moreover, we see in Scripture, when in Romans 8, when Paul is trying to figure out what can separate us from the love of God. What does he say? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Neither death, nor life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, nor any power, how great they are, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even taking one's own life. But we also believe that this is not what God would have for us. To take one's life is to turn from the Lord's will for life and the cherishing of life. Now, I know things can get complicated with the effect of how we understand that as you think through it mentally, as you depend on your own faith, depression, anxiety, mental illness, and the deep darkness can shadow and and really make things complicated when it comes to understanding and believing in the goodness of our God and his love for us. But if you're in that place where you have considered taking your own life, there's the darkness that pervades over you. Bring that into the light. That's me as your pastor speaking to you. Bring that into the light. Whether it's through a therapist a trusted friend, your parents, maybe myself or one of the elders or staff. And if that's too unbearable for you, there's a suicide hotline that you can call to be able to reach out. Nothing can separate us from the love of God and there is hope. Cling to life. What we see Saul do is he turns away from life and ultimately God. His failures brought about his own death, but also the death of so many other people, right? You just heard us read, Israel was routed and fell slain in verse 1. Sons of Saul were struck down in verse 2. His trusted armor bearer dies in verse 5. Cities of God are abandoned in verse 7. And ultimately in verses 8 through 10, God is mocked by the Philistines. And if you caught the word that Jessica read, it was the good news. The Philistines had their own gospel, the good news. And what was it? God was dead. They behead Saul and they lamb blast his body on the gates of their city to be able to mock God and say that he is no longer alive. 
This is the consequence of a man who failed to follow God and be the representative. And my question for us this morning is, where are you? What do you pay attention to? Is it your character in following the Lord or is it in the ways that we're taught, our gifts, our talents, our, our, our money, our education? Or do we give priority to our character, the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think this is one of the main things we have learned from 1 Samuel through the life of Saul. Secondly, I think not only do we learn about the failure of Saul and his character, but secondly, this gratitude of Jabesh Gilead. Read here in verse 11. So after they hear what's happened to Saul's body, and his sons, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, what the writer is doing is he's taking us back, as we think about Saul's life, he's taking us back to Saul's first positive conquest as a leader when he was tested and it was with Jabesh Gilead right when the Ammonites took over that city what does Saul do he delivers them if you recall the spirit of God rushes upon Saul and he takes his men and he goes in the middle of night and he rescues the people of God from the Ammonites in the city of Jabesh Gilead and what do we see happen here now the people remember that and these people Go and deliver Saul now so that he might have a proper burial. And what is clear from this account of their deliverance of Saul is that even though the Spirit of God has now departed from Saul and he's been eventually a failed king, they remembered a time when Saul was their Savior and they remained grateful to him. And so they bring him back to their graveyard. And they give him a proper burial. And my takeaway from this, though it's hard, is that though Saul completely and epically failed not only God, but his people, the people of Jabesh Gilead gave Saul dignity. They remember that he is a man who is made in the image of God. And all of that outweighed what he had become at the end of his life. There's no hint of disparagement nor denigration in the telling of the story of Saul at the end of his life. Now, why that's so hard for me to swallow and hard for me to digest is that we are in a culture right now where church leadership has failed epically, right? A laundry list of people that we can list and name who have morally failed like Saul. And my inclination and my desire is to be able to disparage them, to feel good about myself, And to be able to look at all the horrible things that I've done for the Christian witness. My thought isn't like this people of Jabesh Gilead. To give a man his dignity that outweighed anything horrible that he had done. Now, some of us here, that might be so hard to hear. That's just my story and being challenged to be able to say, what do I think about these three men in my own life who have failed me? Who have morally failed? Who discipled me in junior high? who was formative in my college years. One woman who was a prayer warrior and who passed away, and I didn't even go to her funeral because I was so upset and I thought she didn't deserve my time there. 
But as we think about these people and what the gratitude of Jabesh Gilead, some of you might, this is just too hard and that's okay to be able to even consider this. But allow other people in your life to process through this so that maybe one day we can be here where even those that have failed you, who have sinned against you, you can be able to look back and see that yet God has still used them in some particular way. While you are able to separate who they are in God's image from what they have done. But we see that here. They are able to give gratitude and see the dignity and worth that Saul had, even though he had completely not only destroyed the, himself, but their entire nation. The Philistines had taken over, and it would have been so easy to just let him rot on the gates of their cities in, Philistine, in Philistia. But they don't. Now, while some of us might find this challenging and upsetting, I think all of us can land here wherever you are at in experiencing death and sorrow, those that have sinned against you. We're able to at least see what David did. And that's my third point here. It's the lament of David. Now, we didn't read it, but if you turn one page over to chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, read with me starting in verse 11 what David does when he hears upon Saul and Jonathan's death and what's gone on in Israel. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. You see here, David laments for Jonathan and for Saul. Now, Jonathan makes sense. He was a trusted, faithful friend. But Saul, he could have easily rejoiced. This man, after all, was trying to kill him for at least 10 years of his life. There would have been some relief to say, oh, finally I could breathe. This man is dead. But he laments for him. He laments for him as much as he laments for Jonathan. But he also doesn't despair. He could have easily despaired in this moment upon hearing that. Jonathan is dead. The cities have been ambushed. So many of God's men have died and women have died and children have died. And even Saul, right? What does David do in the wilderness? David is trying to reconcile with Saul. He's trying to make things right and to be able to say that this is the way things end and talk about regret, not being able to reconcile with Saul while he was alive. David could have despaired, but he doesn't. He laments. And I think there's a difference between despairing and lament because lament is an act of faith. Lament is an act of faith. It cries out to God asking for him to help us in a time of need. I mean, that's what, in, in one way, that's what we're doing as we think about what's going on in Russia or in Ukraine. As we think about what's happening maybe even, even in your own life. It's so easy to despair, but what does it look like for us to lament and cry out to God? Because even in our lament, there is hope because we're asking God, who's mighty to save, to deliver us. And that's what David does. He laments. Both despair and lament can be an honest assessment of the circumstances. You can be honest about where you're at with despair and lament. Both can be filled with tears and anguish and emotion, right? But the difference with despair and lament is that despair can only look at the circumstance or yourself. But lament looks to God who is truly mighty 
and who is in control of all things. And the hope is that he will act in his appropriate time. I think that's why this entire book of 1 Samuel is hard, but it's so hopeful for us. It's hard because throughout this book, there's been so much failure. From the opening chapters to the end, there is failure after failure after failure. It began with Eli the priest and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. It continued with the failure of God's people saying, God, we want a king like all the other nations. Even though you're our king, we want, other, we want a human king so that we might be like them. And ultimately, it was a failure of Saul as we looked at today and throughout. And the culmination of all of these failures is what we see end up in chapter 31. The stench of death is everywhere. Bodies are slown on the mount, on the fields of Mount Gilboa. And God's people are fleeing their own land as the Philistines are taking over. And if you were an Israelite, as you smelled, as you saw, as you sensed death all around, what would you think? You would think that the kingdom of God had failed, that it was over. But it wasn't. This is where I'm reminded I, that I need to look through the eyes of God's kingdom that endures forever. God's kingdom endures because God is absolutely in control and his purposes are certain for you and for me as it was for God's people in 1 Samuel. Saul, Saul didn't only die because of the consequences of his own failure and his moral failure and his character. Saul died because God's purposes were to see a better king come and lead Israel, a man after God's own heart that set the stage for David to come and be the rightful king who would lead God's people, who would lead God's people well, even with all of his horrible and horrific failures. And you look at this book, and how does 1 Samuel end here? 1 Samuel ends in a graveyard. 1 Samuel ends in a graveyard. And again, you would think that the death of God and his kingdom are certain. But that's what we have to remember of another graveyard, right? The one that Jesus was laid in a tomb in a graveyard near Golgotha. And in that place, imagine what the disciples, his friends, must have thought. We know they were afraid. They fled. Why? Because they thought the kingdom of God was lost. That Jesus had failed. And they were scared for their lives. And you might be thinking that as well and wondering the same thing, but it wasn't and it isn't today. Jesus conquered death. He rose from the graveyard. And we, we have seen Jesus defeat sin and death through his resurrection in conquering death once and for all. And his kingdom endures and it has no end. That is the hope of 1 Samuel. And this is the hope that we are called to have, to have hope and endurance, courage and faith, to carry on and follow Jesus each and every single day faithfully. Our hope isn't in nations. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in empires. Our hope is not in ourselves and our circumstances. Our hope is in the King, King Jesus, who endures forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that despite of our failures, despite of what happens in this world, 
despite of what we see with our human eyes. Lord, thank you for the reminder that your kingdom endures forever. And because of that truth, Lord, we can be able to faithfully follow you and have hope in the midst of hard, hard things, even death. So Lord, I pray that even as we come to the table now, strengthen us, encourage us, give us the hope that we need as we are fed here through the bread and through the cup. So Lord, we might know and be reminded that your kingdom truly endures forever and it has no end. Do that good work we ask as we come now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.